continuing in our series on, um, on the area of mission. And as you see in your chair, there's a commitment card. And um, on the front of your card, you're going to see the reminder of uh, the four commitments. So what I want you to do, the, basically the four commitments this year as we think about mission is we want to pray for people. The first one is pray. We're going to pray for people in our lives that they need to know Jesus as Savior. These are those that we actually have contact with. We want to train ourselves, be equipped to share the gospel with others. We want to invite friends to come to church and to come to know Jesus as Savior. We want to walk and really commit and say, God, can you enable us to share the gospel with at least one person this year? So what I want you to do is to carry this card wherever you go, keep it in your Bible, keep it in your wallet. Uh, and it's really important um, when you turn on the back part of it, this is an important part for today, and it says praying for, and then there's several lines down here. So our commitment, our first commitment, is again to pray for people in our lives that we want to know, we want them to know Jesus as Savior. So we want you to, uh, you know, pray about it right now, but in, in, when you go home, just write down at least four people that uh, you have regular contact with and ask God that uh, he'll work in their hearts. Uh, to come to receive Jesus as Savior this year. Carry this card with you, bring it to with you to church because in our community groups, we're gonna be setting aside a time every time we meet and uh, we're gonna whip out our cards and spend time just praying uh, for, for our friends, uh, sharing them what God has done in terms of answering prayers, and hopefully we'll be able to put a little check mark there and say we praise God and celebrate together that, that they have come to know Jesus as Savior. And so as we put these names down, we don't do it lightly. We really are praying that God will do something in this year that as we pray, as our brothers and sisters are praying together for those that we really want to come to know Jesus as Savior, whether it's gonna be family or, or friends or whoever, um, just really uh, keep this with you. And uh, we're gonna be really serious. We're gonna be continuing to pray together and believe that God's going to do something very mighty and wonderful this year. So again, hold on to these and uh, if, if, you know, and uh, don't lose it. If you do lose it, there are some in the back, but we don't wanna have too many, you know, floating around. So please do fill that out, carry it with you in your wallet or in your Bible. So today we're going to be continuing our sermon series. We're looking at the idea of worthy. We're studying what the Bible has to say about God. And last week we established this idea that worship is actually by definition is the appropriate response of creation to the greatness of God. That worship is the fuel for the Christian life. And we talked about the church being like a spiritual charging station for the spirit of God to, to give us that strength for each, to face each week. And today we want to look at one of the primary attributes of God and that is the holiness, the holiness of God. My professor once said that holiness is one of those uncomfortable attributes of God because it reminds us of how much unlike God we are. See, the holy God is just real quick intrinsic. Uh, it's his intrinsic and transcendent purity that God is completely without sin, that he is the standard of righteousness through which all of creation must conform. And, and, and it's hard to kind of think about holiness because holiness is kind of outside of our experience. Uh, A.W. Tozer wrote this. He says, we, in this world, we learn to live 
with unholiness, right? I mean, technically we do. We've come to look upon it as natural and expected. We are, we're not disappointed when we find that you know, our teachers aren't teaching all the truth, that, or our, our politicians are not faithful, or that uh, our, our, you know, as he says, merchants, but just, just businessmen or businesswomen uh, are not completely honest, or even our friends, uh, people that we know, may not be completely trustworthy, because we, we just live with this you know, constantly. But when we want to understand God, we really need to understand what holiness is. Because of all the things that God is, holiness is at the center of his being. In Exodus 15, it says, Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? God, God's love is not like our love. God's love is a holy love. God's wisdom is a holy wisdom. God's justice is a holy justice. Everything about God and what he does is holy. And so we want to look at what that means and how that affects us as we are you know, his people. And so I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. And let's, let's go ahead and let's stand in reverence for the word of God. <coughs> reading in verse 1 it says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy presence he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. For such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the God of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. You may be seated. Now this psalm was written, uh, it's a, like, it was written by King David, and it was used actually like a song, an actual song that was sung as the Israelites would proceed together to the temple for worship. And if you look at it, it's kind of a call and response type of thing. And throughout this, this psalm, you also sense this idea of movement, of this movement of the people. Because in verse 1 uh, to 2, you get this sense of the people, they're singing about the power of God as they're walking up the mountain towards the temple. And then in verse 3 through 6, you see that this is the moment where the people actually reach the gates of the temple, and they're met by the priests who are guarding the door, and the worshipers were proclaimed together. They would say, who can enter into the sanctuary? And the priests would sing back. They would say, only those with clean hands and a pure heart. And then in verse 7 through 8, we see the people now entering into the sanctuary with shouts of joy and praise of the Lord's greatness. And the psalm concludes with God coming into the temple to meet with his people. And so you have this sense of this movement of, of 
walking up the hill, arriving at the temple, and meeting with God finally as we're able to enter into the temple. And in this uh, message today, I want to really just focus on kind of the middle section there, the three verses three through six. And the main idea or the main thing we want to learn is that we must approach a holy God with a holy life. And there are three things we want to look at as we look at this passage. Number one, we want to ask the question, what actually is holiness? Number two, how do you approach a holy God? And number three, what does it mean to be a holy people? So we look at the first, you know, what is holiness? If you look at verse three, it says, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy presence or his holy place. Now again, for us to go to church, it's pretty easy. You know, well, I don't know. It's not actually that easy, but we get in a car, we drive to church, we come in and we sit down, we rush in, sit down, get a nice comfortable seat. And we're like, you know, praise God, we got here on time. Uh, Carrying things. Well, nowadays we don't have to carry a Bible. We just, you know, have our phone, which we have attached to us anyways. It's like attached to us wherever we go when we're showering, have a phone, whatever. And, and, and so it's like, it's nothing to carry a phone to worship. So basically when we worship, we get in a car, drive to church, and we, bring, we don't bring anything actually. But see, the Israelites, when they came to worship, they actually ascended up a, a, a hill to the temple. And they would, with that ascension, they would be carrying their sacrifice, bringing their sacrifice, whether it's fruits, whether it's an animal or whatever, they bringing that up to the mountain in order to worship God. And as they went up the mountain, um, they were, in a sense, spiritually preparing themselves to meet with this holy God. And, and, And even from a physical standpoint, it's like you're down here at the bottom of the hill, this is where we are spiritually. We're, we're uh, below in creation. And God, we're ascending up to the mountain to meet with God. And God actually in heaven, he has to even come down to this mountain place for us to be able to meet. And that's really the sense of how uh, the Jewish worshipers, as they met with God, how their hearts were being ready to meet with this God. And I'd like to show a, a, a video clip of actually, they, they, they found the steps to Jerusalem, and, and this is a video clip about just kind of what the ancient people kind of went through as they went to worship. Let's just go ahead and let's roll this. <coughs> so this is actually the new road. It's only 2,000 years old, it looks like new. This idea that you're, you're walking up these steps, you're ascending to meet with God, and in verse three it says again, who shall stand, when they, they finally get to the top, and they're standing at the door, and it says, who shall stand in his holy place? And it calls the place where they arrive to worship God as a holy place where God is. Now, the Hebrew word for holy means separate. And this idea in Exodus 3, when, when Moses stood before the burning bush, you know, in Exodus, uh, God said, remove your sandals from the, your feet because the place where you're standing is holy ground. In John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And it's talking about this idea that God is completely without sin. 
Now, again, I want to talk a little bit, uh, how do we see this in our terms? And I want to talk a little academically, because I know some of the college students are back. So I wanted you to feel comfortable. Uh, a lot of times we have what's grading on a curve, right? We know what grading on a curve is. And we kind of like classes that grade on a curve, OK? So sometimes we grade sin on a curve you know, in our lives, because we'll say, well, you know, okay, there's, on this point, there's like the really, really bad sinners. They're on this point. And this is like the people that like are murderers and rapists, and, and they're the terrible people. And so we say, okay, that's a bad sinner. And then we start moving up the curve, and we say, okay, when we get to about this point on the curve, uh, these are what we call, they're okay sinners. So they're kind of like, well, they're, they're not that good, but, you know, they're not really bad. They're not bad like the really bad sinners. And then we get to the top of the curve. Okay, that's the average, right? And we say that's the average sinner. And the average sinner are like, you know, that's where most people are. Oh, the average sinner, he's a nice guy, she's a nice gal. Not perfect, they're cool, you know, so they're average sinners. And then, of course, when you get to the other side of the curve, to this side, we say these are the excellent sinners, right? They're the really good sinners. And we, most of us, we'll kind of put ourselves kind of in that category, right? We'll say, yeah, I'm probably... I'm not perfect, but I'm better than average. I'm a better than average sinner. Maybe actually I'm a really good sinner. I'm an excellent sinner. And, and so we kind of think of it in terms of sin in that way. That's how we look at things. But God, God does not recognize, he doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't look at sin in terms of a curve. In class also, we have these things called pass-fail these classes, right? And sometimes these classes are like, at the end of the class, you either pass or fail, right? You either did what you needed to do to get the, get the pass, or you didn't do it, and there's no in-between. Now, if life was like a class, and God was the professor, he wouldn't have pass-fail. He'd have something called perfect-fail. Now, if you had a class like this, and you looked at it, and it said perfect-fail, we don't take that class, because that would be a horrible class to take. Um, perfect fail. But basically what this means is, is God is saying that when it comes to sin, you are either perfect in holiness like God, or you're not. That's, that's the only measurement that God sees in terms of sin. And this is really hard for us good sinners, right? It's hard for our ego because we're like, what do you mean God puts me on the same level as like a criminal? And we say, well, I can't take that. I, I, I can't accept that, that the people that, that I disapprove of, that I don't like, and the people that I think are so bad that, that I may be on the same level as they are. But we may not like it, but God says we need to understand it. Because the Bible says very clearly, there is none righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is how he sees sin. Now, you parents, you know of this thing called the, the five-second rule, right? Uh, first, I thought it was the 10-second rule, and then I realized we were doing it wrong. That, uh, but it's five-second rule. And so basically, you know, we can infect your dropped food, but we're going to wait five seconds. Uh, five-second rule basically says, you know, if you drop something on the floor, you can pick it up, blow on it, and you can still eat it. And I see this happen. You know, even like people have a little baby, you know, particularly not the first baby, but the second baby. 
the, the first baby, you know, they'll, they'll sterilize everything. But the second baby, it's like, drop the pacifier on the floor, pick it up, put it back in the mouth right away, right? And again, I don't know why you blow on it, because blowing actually adds more germs. But for some reason, we think when we blow on it, the germs go away. Um, but you ever hear that, 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 that commercial by AT&T? They say, you know, just okay is not okay. You may have seen that one. Now, suppose you were supposed to go into a consultation for surgery. And the doctor says, well, this is a pretty routine surgery. No problem. I've done this, you know, hundreds of times. And oh, by the way, um, uh, since we're having some financial, we need to uh, kind of save money. I only clean my scalpels every other surgery. <laughs> so would you be okay with that? And, it, you know, of course we wouldn't. Like, if a, if the surgeon in the middle of surgery dropped the scalpel on the floor, picked it up and blew on it, and said, oh, five-second rule, <laughs> we'd be like, no way you're going to touch, touch me with that thing. Why? Because when it comes to something like surgery, uh, something so serious, even the smallest germ would mean death. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, lots of germs or just the little germ. The smallest germ would mean death. And in the same way, God is so holy. God's scalpel has to be absolutely clean that he is offended by evil. Uh, he, he is offended by, by any little small sin. That even if we're angry at someone, um, that's as if, like, we, he, he's as offended by that as if we murder someone. That's how God looks at sin. That's how holy God is. That's how totally unlike us God really is. But now the holiness of God, I just want you to know, the holiness of God is more than just how God looks at sin. Holiness is also about how God responds to sin. The holiness of God demands that he judge sin. You see, a lot of times when we look at sin, we get emotionally upset about sin. Uh, we're upset at injustice. Uh, when we see someone who does something offensive, we may confront them. We may speak out and say, that's not fair, that's not right, don't do it again. That's what we do. But God doesn't simply get upset at injustice. He doesn't just confront justice and speak out about justice. God responds to sin with judgment. Now judgment is actually God's natural and necessary reaction to anything and everything that violates his holiness. That's the judgment of God. And on the day of judgment when Christ returns, it says all of creation, every person, living and dead, will stand before God and be judged according to his perfect holiness. Okay, that's really clear in the scriptures. Some people, you know, will say, you know, to, about God, they say, well, I don't believe in a God because uh, how can there be a God when there's so much evil in this world? How can there be a, a good and powerful God when there's so much evil in the world? And, and the answer is, well, just wait for it. Because justice is coming. And when it comes, it will be swift and complete. And the punishment for sin, the Bible says very clearly, the punishment for sin is no less less than eternal suffering in hell. Now, justice is also a double-edged sword because this really, when we talk about the holiness of God, we now ask the question, well, what about me? And we say, well, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. And this really does bring us to the second question, that is, how do you approach a holy God? 
And David answers in verse 4. He says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And then this is where the priest will say, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, literally what is empty, and does not swear deceitfully. Now this idea of hands, again, remember, um, uh, Psalms are poetry. So hands are like the instruments of what we do. You know, how we do things, our actions. They represent our actions. Heart represents the intentions, the, the motives, the inner mechanisms that drive what we do. And even Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if you hate someone, if you get mad at that person who cuts you off on the freeway, if uh, so you get mad at that person who's rude to you uh, at, the, at the counter uh, or is inconsiderate, Jesus says, that's just like murdering them in your heart. Wow. And so what is the psalmist saying? How do we, as sinful people, approach a holy God? And the Bible answers, without God's help, we can't. We cannot. Because no matter how good we are, no matter how, how, how much we try, we are not holy like God is holy. And so what do we do? Now the better question is, what has God done? And, and when we look at this, we think about uh, the idea that in verse 5, it says, uh, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of, God, of the God of Jacob, Selah. Now, the word righteousness, it says here that the person who approaches God in the right way, it says he will receive righteousness from God. Righteousness in the Hebrew is tzedakah. And tzedakah means, it's a legal term, which means a ruling by a judge. And when a judge declares someone um, tzedakah, uh, or, or tzedik, tzedik, which means um, you're, you, are, you have been examined and you have been declared innocent, he gives the person what is called a tzedakah which is, the, it's a public acknowledgement or a written th thing of innocence. And you hold that and say, this is my declaration that the judge has said, I'm innocent. And so when you put all these things together and you look at this sense of, of what this psalm is saying, particularly in these verses, you see that God is a holy God, you see the people coming to God to worship him, you see the people arriving at the door of the temple, wanting to be with God, you see them crying out, who can enter this place? You see the priest saying, well only people who are perfectly holy, clean in their hearts and hands, uh, without sin at all, and instead of the people going away and saying, I'm not that, or instead of the priest sending the people away and saying, sorry, none of you can come in, it, it, it says that those can approach God uh, if they come with an appropriate sacrifice, if they receive this righteousness from God, from the God of their salvation. And what is that, what is that sacrifice? What, how do we receive the righteousness? Well, in our case, again, it's Jesus. That's why we think about Jesus. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice offered for our righteousness. Jesus was God taking on the form of man who died on the cross, takes the punishment for our sin, who poured out, God poured out his judgment. We say a judgment, the judgment of sin is, is uh, hell. 
and it says that God poured out the judgment that we deserve for our sin on Jesus, and Jesus died on the cross. Jesus was innocent. He didn't deserve any punishment at all, yet he took all the punishment on himself, and he died on the cross to take away all of the, the sin. And then Jesus rose from the dead, and God says, through Jesus, when we stand before God, and God is going to judge us, as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God offers this righteousness of Jesus for each one of us, this certificate that says that in the eyes of God, we have been declared forgiven, just, and, and, and holy. And so if you're here today and you have never uh, received Jesus as Savior, again, this is, this is the gift that God provides. God is not just saying, okay, you gotta be a good person and, 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 and you know, let's try to get on the other side of that bell curve you know, and, and make sure that, that, that I'm still staying ahead of the whole pack of people. Uh, or, or, or God, I've done so much that I'm trying to, you know, I'm on this side of the curve, but I'm getting on the other side and maybe by the end of my life, I'll get on the other side of the curve and I'll be good enough for you. And God says, no, no. Um, righteousness comes through faith is a gift. You don't have to work. You don't have to keep trying to be better than everyone else or keep making sure that you're ahead of the curve. He says just humble, just humble yourself, receive Jesus as Savior, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for my sin, that he rose from the dead, follow him, honor him, and you will receive this, this um, righteousness from God. It also says, verse five also says that we will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness. Now, it's interesting because when we think of blessing, we, you know, if I were to say, what does blessing mean to you? We say, well, I feel blessed because you know, I have a home, I have this, I have you know, food to eat, I have a job. I feel really blessed. So we bl think blessing is kind of like a feeling, like I'm, I'm in a good position, I'm in a good place, that's blessed. Well, in ancient Israel, blessing was very different. Because I was looking at this verse and I, I, I was checking the Hebrew and I thought it was going to be shalom, which is peace, but it's not that. It's the word barak, which is a very specific word for blessing. And what, what blessing for the Israelite was so important that it almost took on kind of like a tangible tangible feel to it. It was almost like a physical gift that you received from God that you would say, wow, this is so precious that I'm going to hide it away. I'm going to protect it and guard it as my most treasured possession. It's like, you know, if you have something that your mom gave you on your wedding day that came from your grandmother's, grandmother's, you know, whatever, and it's given to you on your wedding day, and you say, oh my. You're not going to say, oh, I'll leave it on the table, I'll pick it up later. It's kind of like, oh. And then when you bring it home, you don't just leave it somewhere where, you know, somebody's going to drop it down the toilet or something. You're like, I got to find a safe. I gotta find a place, put that safe in a place where, where, where no one, even if they break in, uh, you know, they're never gonna get this because they can take everything else in my house. I don't, they take my you know, 85, I don't know, how big are the TVs now? My 3,000, you know, 25K TV. They can take that, I don't care. You know, it's sitting out in the living room. But this ring, this treasure, I'm gonna hide in a place where no one will find it. It's so special irreplaceable. Everything else I can buy, I can replace it, but not this. This is, this is my treasure. This is the blessing. This is how Israelites looked at the blessing from God. 
In Genesis, you know, there were two brothers, right? Uh, uh, Jacob and Esau, they literally fought over gaining this blessing from God. Jacob's entire life was about grasping to try to get God's blessing. He would give everything to, to get God's blessing. Even when he was physically disabled and he was lying on the ground, he was clinging to God and he was crying out, God, just give me the blessing. That's all I want. In the Bible, blessing of God, the blessing of God is never something that you could earn, that you could grasp, but it was something that God would bestow upon you as a gift. And sometimes I feel like as I think about our salvation, you know, we must learn to treasure our salvation like a blessing, not treat it like it's nothing. I remember uh, there was a, uh, someone who was sharing actually here at church about Christians in Iran. And, and in Iran, of course, it's illegal for Iranians to worship Jesus, to go to church. But what's interesting is in Iran, if you're ethnic Armenian, you can go to church. There are Armenian churches in Iran who people can go in freely and they're not persecuted because it, those are legal. But sometimes when you go to these Armenian churches, you'd have to stand in line because the police would be standing at the door of the church and they'd be checking your papers to make sure that you're not Iranian. Because if you're Iranian, they'll, they'll send you away or they may put you in jail or things like that. And, but you're Armenian, you can go right in. And I remember this missionary was sharing that, that there was a friend of hers who was Iranian, Muslim, who had just come to know Christ and she really wanted to go to church that day. And you know, the missionary um, is Armenian, the missionary can go in. But as they walked to the door, uh, they saw that the police were standing at the door that day. It just happened that day, the police were there. And um, it said that, the, the missionary said that that girl who had received Jesus Savior, she just stood outside the church and she wept and wept just bitterly because she was not able to go in and, and worship God. And, I, and as I listened to that, it, it just really struck my heart in terms of, now this is a person who really treasures her salvation. How much she wanted just to go into the house of God and worship and, and just, just be with God. The, the, the blessing of, of being saved, of, of being cleansed of her sin, of, of being able to fellowship and worship with believers. How important that was to her and, 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 and how much it meant to her that when she couldn't do it, um, she just wept and wept and cried and her heart was just broken. And I, I think about that and, and I think about you know what does it mean for us us to treasure our salvation. Do we really treasure our salvation? Jesus told the story about a man in, in a parable. He says he found a treasure in a field and he was so determined that he sold everything that he had, bought the whole field just so he could get that treasure. That's how much he wanted that treasure. The salvation of God, the freedom we have in Jesus, the righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ. Do we treasure these things? Do we consider it as something of great worth? When I really treasure the freedom of Jesus Christ, why would I return to the bondage of sin and legalism if I really treasured the freedom of Christ? If I, if I treasured uh, the, the freedom of forgiveness of Jesus Christ, that I'm so blessed to be forgiven by, by Jesus, why would I trample on it with the sin that so easily comes? If I treasure the power of the Spirit filling my life, 
really treasure it. Why would I quench its fire by just trying to do things on my own, saying, God, I could take care of it? See, how, does, how do we really truly respond to this treasure that we have in Jesus Christ, this blessing? And this brings us to the last thing. What does it mean to be a holy people? Now, as we look at this passage, again, I want to suggest five things that, uh, that we can do or that, that remind us of. First of all, treat God with reverence. The Bible says when God came down to the mountain, uh, the mountain shook because of his holy presence. And that we must treat God with reverence, with honor. And my dad is a, he is a very, very gentle, kind man. And, you know, he's like all of his life, it's just so kind. And, um, and I remember there's one time in my mind I remember, um, so distinct. We're all sitting at dinner and we're joking around. Our family loves a joke and play and things like that. And my sister made a remark that was disparaging against my father. Now she didn't mean it. We were just laughing and joking around and she said something that was not very nice about my father. And for the first time, I looked at my father's expression just changed. And he said, okay, you cannot say that about your father. You need to go to your room and you'll not have dinner tonight. And, uh, you know, and I really, at that time, I was really surprised because my father, I've never seen him do that before. I've never seen him, you know, he disciplined us and things like that, but I've never seen him so, um, I'm not sure what the word is, but, but I remember that moment so clearly to say, you know, I love my father, he's kind and gentle, he's forgiving, we joke around with him, we love being with him, but don't say anything that is insulting or disparaging of who he is. And, and that, I always remember that. And, and I think about God, and I think about the fact that we must treat God with reverence. Not that we would insult him with our words, but remember that as much as God loves us and cares for us, he's there with us, he forgives us, he's very patient with us, but yet at the same time, he is a holy God. He deserves to be treated in a manner with great reverence when we speak about him, when we walk in his presence, when we worship, when we approach him, and things like that. Um, this is very very, very important. The second thing is pursue holiness. This has to do with how we look at sin, particularly our own sin. We can't say, oh, well, you know, sin, it's okay. It's just a mistake. It's not a big deal. Uh, oh, you know, whatever I watch on TV, yeah, it's okay. It's not a big deal. It's not as bad as, it's not rated R. It's rated PG. It's not so bad. It's on TV. It's not in the movie theater. Doesn't matter. Uh, or whatever. Or, you know, I did something, yeah, I said something not very nice, but, you know, they can take it. They don't care. Um, no, I mean, pursue holiness. When Isaiah saw God in all of his holiness, Isaiah just bowed down and he said, woe is me. You know, I'm undone, um, meaning I'm completely unraveled when I think about my own sin. And so, so we want to pursue holiness as we think about that God is holy, a holy God. Third thing is to live in obedience 
that it, it, when, when it says to have clean hands and a pure heart, yes, we will never be holy like God is holy, but God still calls us that in our actions, in our thoughts, in our motives, that we continue to strive to, to live in obedience and honor with God. The fourth thing, treat others with grace, with love and forgiveness. See, the holiness of God transforms how we treat others. It's not saying, oh, well, now I have a higher standard for you because I'm comparing you to the holiness of God now. No, it's actually when we hold people, sometimes we hold people to our own standards, I and mean, we just do. Like, even something as simple as, oh, how could they dress like that? You know? Or how could they say something like that? Or, gosh, they're a Christian. Why are they doing that? And, and we have those lists. We may not write it out, but it's, I mean, it's there. It's written in our hearts. And I'm not saying that, that we should just excuse people or whatever. But how we love people, how we treat them, how we speak to them, how we forgive them, this is all a part of when we see the holiness of God and what he has done for us and the standard of holiness of, of God. How does that change how we treat others? And finally, uh, lift up our heads with joy. This is verse seven says, uh, watch, I don't have it there, but verse seven says, lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, um, and let the king of glory come in. This idea of lifting up your head is like this joyous anticipation. It's this picture of someone whose head is bowed down in sorrow, and they're just really sad, and um, they're, they're burdened with their sin, and God takes his hand, and he lifts up your head like this to look at his face. And he says, lift up your head. When you're in my presence, you don't have to be shame and ashamed and, and overcome and burdened. You know, lift up your head and, and look into your loving Father. It says, lift up the gates of the temple, lift up their heads to, to look at God. And this is the, whole, this is the idea of, of all the people lifting up their head to see the holiness of God. The holiness of God is not something that should create a burden for us. The holiness of God is not something that should, should uh, uh, create something that, oh, I feel terrible, I'm such a bad person, I'm such a bad Christian. The holiness of God should, be, uh, should, should inspire uh, a sense of, we have the righteousness of Christ. It should inspire a sense of joy, a sense of freedom from the guilt and the difficulties and the judgment that we receive in this world uh, so much. When we come into the presence of a holy God, we should feel like, oh, I feel so good. You go into the world and, man, if you're, if you're not saying the right thing or doing the right thing, everybody's like, oh, you know, you're not driving the right car, everybody's like, oh, you know, you walk in and they're talking and they stop talking and you're like, yeah, yeah, you're a school, people judging, and, and you just feel like this, pressure of judgment and burden and everything like that when we come into the presence of God into his holy temple we stand before a holy God who has given his son Jesus for us we should feel like oh, God I feel I just feel so good I feel so joyful I feel like I can like I can just float up because the burden of all of the, the sin and the guilt and the judgment and everything else in the, in, the, in, in the holiness of God, it just melts away. And all there is is just this holy God who loves us so deeply, who has taken care of all of our sin 
through giving us Jesus Christ. And so as we think about these things, as we come to the Lord in prayer, as we think about the holiness of God, uh, let's think upon these things. Um, how is God speaking to us right now? Let's go ahead and let's bow our heads in prayer. And as we bow our heads in prayer, as we think about this idea that imagine that we're at the foot of the temple right now and the doors are opening up and the glory of the Lord, the holiness of God now comes to meet with us. How, do you, how does God want us to respond right now? Is God reminding us about how should we should treat him uh, in reverence? What should we do? Is God teaching us about purity, something in our lives right now that we just really need to come before God and say, God, this is an area in my life where I just need to bring before you and not let it pull me down all the time. This is the moment. Just confess it to you and, and let God cleanse us. Maybe it's an area of obedience. Maybe it's an area of, of learning to forgive somebody right now. We really need to forgive somebody. And we just say, God, thank you for a picture, a reminder of how much you've forgiven me. How much you have forgiven me. Let me have this same love. God says he can give it as a gift. That's the blessing. That's part of the blessing that God gives to us. So let's go ahead and just spend some time in prayer. What's God saying to you right now? How is he asking you to respond to his holiness? If you've been walking this week and things have been a burden, let God lift up your head right now. Lift up your head. Say, you are my beloved child whom I love so much. Father, we praise you. Father, whenever we come to your word, your word really brings us to another place. It brings us out.